On this episode of the Fellowship Podcast by CMF International, we have the opportunity to continue our conversation with Dr. Kip Lines, the Executive Director of CMF. Kip's going to share about his terms of service with the Turkana people in northern Kenya and why you should never, ever buy a camel. I'm your host, Jake Moore. Welcome to the Fellowship. Welcome to the Fellowship Podcast. Uh, I have today on our second episode, my good friend, Kip Lines. Welcome back to the Fellowship Podcast, Kip. Thanks, Jake. Uh, it's great to uh, see you here. Yeah. Not sure where I am, though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Somewhere uh, at home. I'm at home, and we're grateful that we have technology that provides the opportunity for us to connect and be with one Pretty another. Cool. Yeah, very yeah. cool. Well, wow. the last time that we talked on the Fellowship Podcast, it was actually over a year ago, so it was quite some time ago, <laughs> which is ridiculous. Podcast things is really going now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just taking off. We're it's moving. exploded. It's exploding. <laughs> Hopefully, we'll have some more movement with it uh, going forward. Um, but we had the awesome opportunity to connect and to hear kind of the first part of your missionary journey, uh, leading up to the mission field. You and Katie moving to Kenya uh, right before Y2K and the fun of oh, that's right. not, yeah. not being able to buy a generator, having to buy some janky refrigerator, all that fun yep. stuff. Yep, um, yep. And, and you shared a little bit about your first, uh, your first year on the field doing uh, language studies, living out in the desert, having old guys greet you as you were going to the outhouse, all kinds of fun stuff like that. That's what right. I was hoping, what I was hoping today was to hear a little bit more about your first term. So, like post language learning, um, and what your daily and weekly ministry rhythms uh, looked like. Um, so, it'd be great to just hear, get get a, like a glimpse of what your life as a family and as a missionary in that second year uh, of your first term uh, of service looked like, and even like. What was your first term? Was it two years? Was it four years? Things like that would be really informative, I think, for for me and for everybody that's listening. Yeah, our first term was was a four year term, um, but uh, we we spent the whole first uh, the whole first year in language learning, and then um, at the end of that language learning year, which I guess we talked about in the last episode, a lot of the language learning stuff. Um, the team worked to help identify a location that made sense for us to move to. So the whole goal of our team at that point in time was for missionaries to join the team, learn the language. So we Mm -hmm. would spend a year in a, in a, in a community far away from town, uh, learn Turkana language. And then we would identify a location where we could come alongside church leaders in church planting. Yeah. Um, and so we we found a place um, at the toward the end of that year uh, called Lopala, which was actually a little farther mm-hmm. out of town than the place where we mm-hmm. did language learning. Uh, and we uh, moved out to that village. Um, we actually had to build a house 
which Ooh, was wow. a crazy story in itself. Like, literally, uh, you were the construction <laughs> guy, like hammer and nails. You're, you're putting uh, the walls up. I hammered some nails, not a whole lot. Uh, <laughs> mostly, I was providing the the funds and the food uh, uh, for the. Guys you were more like it. the general tr- contractor <laughs> <laughs> and cook. <laughs> Well, it was at that time. What we did is we, we there was a company in in Kenya, uh, EHG Economical Homes Group. They would build, they would design. You would design a home, and they would build it in one meter panels. And so we literally had our whole house wow. arrive at one time, pre-built in one meter sections. How cool! And then uh, they would send. They sent a guy out. Uh, well, they sent a crew like three or four guys that came out and just put up the house in like a week. And it was uh, right before Christmas. Uh, uh, yeah, right before Christmas in the year 2000. Uh, okay. that, that was being done. Wow, that's yeah. cool. So did they actually finish in time for Christmas? Did you guys get to spend yeah. your first Christmas in that house? No, they finished in time for all of us to leave for Christmas. <laughs> nice. <laughs> How can We went down to Eldoret and uh, normally we were in Eldoret or some other part of Kenya uh, and celebrated Christmas with other missionary families at that time. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, yeah as opposed yeah, to being yeah. by yourself out in the desert, you thought, hey, let's be together to celebrate yeah. and uh, be family and together. Normally what we would do is we would have a village Christmas celebration before we would leave, uh, and uh, it involved a lot of food and hmm. singing and dancing. Um, and so, yeah, getting that house set up was a big deal, and then uh, – headed down for Christmas and then headed back and got into kind of more normal daily life for us at that time. Well, so before we jump into like the rhythms of life and ministry, how did you take to language? Like, did you feel Mm. like you did well with language? Was it a struggle for you to, to get through? What did, what did it look like learning Turkana for you? I think anybody who learns a second language or a third language, you, you honestly recognize how difficult it is for you yourself to say that you're really good at it. Uh, sure. Yeah. Absolutely. There's so much when you're really in it, you recognize yeah. that there's stuff that you don't know yeah. uh, and you continue to not know and you're always learning. Um, I, I mean, from what other people say, I did well in learning Turkana. Um, we, uh, that, that was all I did for a year was mm-hmm. hang out in the village right. and, and try to learn to speak. Um, mm-hmm. So it, for me, hearing came before my ability to speak. So I would say, um, oh gosh, by nine months, between six and nine months, I was able to hear just about everything and understand wow. what people were saying to me. But <laughs> that they were cussing you out behind your back. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, and I knew it, you know, and, and enough to a lot of that early on is uh, you're learning really well how to infer what's being said too by the context and that kind of stuff. And you're mm-hmm. still learning lots of new words, but um, it was about a year, a little longer than a year before I could just say uh, what I wanted to say, you know, without having to do the translation in my head kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Um, and then that just progressed the more that I got into teaching. And so mm-hmm. uh, in that first year after language learning, um, mm-hmm. most of what I was doing, that place, that village that we moved to, Lokwala, there were a couple new churches in that area, little village churches, no church buildings, just under the trees. And everybody was a new Christian in that area. 
And so uh, I spent most of my days just sitting under an acacia tree, reading scripture in Turkana with local new new local Christians, and then also going through some basic uh, lessons, uh, leadership training and discipleship lessons that the team had created and I was creating at that time. So your language gets a lot better, especially when you're teaching yeah. in it. Yeah. So yeah. what we, where would you say you were at? like from a, an age level, like a six-year-old level at the end of your first, your first year. And then going into- past 12 years old, I don't, I'm not certain. <laughs> that was a 12, 12 year old with a really sophisticated language, uh, vocabulary. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. But so, yeah, you saw like that, exponential yeah. growth. You saw exponential oh, yeah. growth once you were like teaching, preaching on a regular basis like yeah. and reading scripture constantly it just took your yeah. language level to the next to the next level i guess well and i think turkana is either a terrible place to learn language or a great place to learn language and it just mm. depends on your your outlook on things um if if you end up kind of hiding uh, hiding in your house um finding other activities that keep you busy during that language learning year then you're not going to learn very much but if you really do force yourself to go out, walk around the village, spend time with people, take naps under the tree with the old men. <laughs> then, then you really do start to pick up the language. And I mean, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a lot of hard work and it, it's absolutely exhausting. Definitely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Aaron and I talked about during our first language year, we kind of had this constant dull headache kind of at the front of our head. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I guess maybe we just finally got used to it. The more we delved into Amharic, <laughs> the further. And it we was funny. It, it really was true. And we heard this advice from others that it, it is good to take a break from your language learning too, mm-hmm. like to step out of it completely, not use the language for a couple of days, come back into it. And I would find that it was like my brain. It's almost like my brain was slowly processing through stuff that I was learning. And if I went away for a couple of days and came back, my yeah. brain had processed it and mm. then I could hear things a little clearer. And some of that was the exhaustion too. Like you get a little more rested and then right. you can, you can hear a little better. <laughs> yeah. It's like building a muscle a little bit. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Part of muscle building is, is the recovery piece. So that's, that's really yeah, cool. I, I don't know anything about that, but yeah, bro. Learning. Yeah, yeah. Totally, bro. <laughs> you're on the swole patrol. Come on, kid. Okay. Yeah. So, okay, then looking into that second year, you got the house, your family's starting to get used to actually being out there in your home. Mm-hmm. How did you then make the jump from like connecting with these little churches? Like, did they just readily accept you? Was there a lot of relationship building? Like, how how did that look? And uh, did they just accept, oh, yeah, he's going to be here to teach us? Or was it like convincing them that you were worth listening to? <laughs> Well, yeah, I think a lot of the convincing was convincing people of why I was really there. I think mm-hmm. that was the the difficult thing to convince people that I really was there because I wanted to talk about God. I wanted to read through scripture with people. Uh, I wanted to hear what the needs were in the community and figure out what we could do to help with those needs. Uh, for many people, you know, I was there to build a school, to build a clinic, to hand mm-hmm. out free food to get people mm. rides to town. Yeah. <laughs> and so very yeah, much that was, service, that was, service oriented. Yeah. yeah. And mm-hmm. so that was a struggle. Um, but uh, we, uh, the, the church leaders that introduced us into the community, uh, 
connected me with the people who were ideal candidates to be church leaders already in that area and the village churches around the village that we lived okay. in. So those were the folks I spent most, almost all of my time with a group of, uh, it was probably about 15 men and women mm-hmm. for that first year. And then they had a plan that I helped with going out to other villages. And so we would go to other villages during that year where there was no church. In, uh, that group, as a group of 10, or would you go like, just take two with you to these different outlying villages? Well, we would usually go with just a couple people to go talk to elders first mm-hmm. in the village just to see if they were even open to us coming uh, mm-hmm. to try to try to explain what we were there for. Uh, and then uh, when they invited us, then we would go and uh, in a larger group and normally would have like a teaching course. Uh, we would take a whole week of just staying at that village Um uh, doing teaching and conversation times during the day. We would ourselves have worship times that people would join in with or not join in with. Uh, it was just and then, an open, an open yeah. corporate worship that was going on under acacia tree, like a, a gathering place, and you would just do that yeah. in public. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then and then after that, we would have um, uh, what we would call night church. So we would make like a weekly trip to that village in the mm. evening and have a worship service and some teaching time. Uh, after uh, a number of months of doing that in an area, uh, we would have uh, another intensive, usually a week long teaching time uh, that would lead to a call for people to accept Jesus hmm. as Lord and be baptized. Uh, and then we would, we would do that. And then there would be a, ch- a new church in that village. Cool. Uh, that's awesome. Yeah. That's really and, phenomenal. And for some of the greatest times, the, the early, the first two years after language learning, I think were the most exciting time where I got to be on the ground in the villages where there were no churches, helping establish new churches yeah. alongside of Turkana church leaders and other Turkana Christians. Yeah, it is exciting. I mean, it, yeah. it was like for, for myself at that time, you know, I was uh, 27 years old, maybe. Was mm-hmm. I? Yeah, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I couldn't think of a more valuable way uh, to spend my time or live my life uh, at that That's point. Awesome. And yeah, so that that was absolutely what I wanted to be doing and engaged in, and and our whole family, you know, that's. That's why we were there. So to see new churches start, to see people follow Jesus, mm-hmm. to be part of that process of helping new Christians read Bible, read the Bible for the first time. Yeah. Uh, it was in those first two years after language learning that we actually got uh, the final translation of the Bible uh, oh, and wow. got it published cool. in Turkana language. Now, who did that? Was that another mission agency that did that, that translation? Uh, it, was, it was the Kenya Bible Society. Mm-hmm. Um, so the United Bible Society is the international organization. The Kenya Bible Society had actually been working in the Turkana Bible for over 20 years. Um, and they had just finished it right before Katie and I arrived on the field, but there was no, um, there was no printing of it. So mm-hmm. that was a whole process in itself where I spent, yeah. um, I spent some time in the office of the Kenya Bible Society, uh, trying to convince them to print the Turkana Bible that had been translated because they didn't think that they was, would make enough. And that was going down to make enough money. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. So you would travel <laughs> from up in the Northwest corner. Uh, yes. Kenya, all the way down to Nairobi 
beseeching these people to please, please, please yeah. print these Bibles. So, so most How, of that happened yeah. in early 2002. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Brian, our son Brian was born in mm-hmm. May 2002. And where so we, where was he born? In uh, Nairobi Hospital in Nairobi. Okay, there in Kenya. Yeah. Awesome. Yep, in the capital. Uh, I splurged, and uh, I always tell people I got Katie the best room in the hospital. Uh, it was the presidential suite. No, nice. it, was, it, was, <laughs> it was. It was an extra thousand shillings a night, which I Whoa. think at that time was yeah. like ten bucks, and. Uh, <laughs> It, had, it was the only room that had, its, right. had its own bathroom in suite. Ooh, so, yeah, you know how to treat a woman right. Ten dollars. That's awesome. But but uh, we had to go down early before the delivery. Uh, our first son, Patrick, was born about a month early. And so the doctors wanted us down early. Uh, Brian was also born about a month early. But uh, during the time that we were in uh, Nairobi, both before and after um, Brian's delivery, uh, I was working on accumulating and gathering all of the lessons that Turkana missionaries in the last 20 years had been writing. So hmm, they had like, cool. they had as a team, they had decided that their goal was to move new Christians into becoming leaders in the church. And they had three different stages of leadership training. And so they, uh, each of the missionaries had written lessons that were used at each of those different stages, but everybody was doing their own thing in all of their different areas. It was kind of the way things were in that time. And so I, I gathered as many different people's lessons as I could and put them all together into one notebook so that everybody could have access oh, cool. to them and use them and put it all on one floppy disk. Nice. A floppy <laughs> disk. Yes. That the, wasn't the small like, ones, the small ones right. that were hard, not really yeah. floppy. But yeah, you know. they weren't actually floppy, <laughs> and they weren't even like a gig, right? Like they weren't even one gigabyte. Oh, right. Yeah, they? actually, I think it was a couple different discs. Like it was like a set of discs. Yeah, for all the lessons. That's so crazy. But while we were down in Nairobi at that time, was when I found out I was I was I went to the Bible Society to find out why we didn't have a, a printed Turkana Bible yet, and uh, I ended up. Uh, going there multiple times talking to the director or president or whatever it was of the Kenyan Bible society. And, and we ended up raising funds from our supporters and then also, uh, IDES, uh, the organization, oh, okay. yeah. national Master emergency services provided some funding for us to pay for the entire first printing of the Turkana Bible. Wow. Uh, That's cool. So we purchased the entire first printing of the Turkana Bible, uh, uh, in 2000, by the end of 2002, and uh, everyone had full copies of the Bible at that point, which was pretty cool. We had been working with these like little books of individual gospels, and there was like a partial New Testament and that kind of stuff. So, how cool! That's awesome, man. Now, so two two questions. Sure. One is when it came to those those times when you would go out into the villages to be doing the teaching and the preaching and doing that with national partners, with Kenyan, with Turkana believers, were you often doing some of the initial speaking and preaching or were you doing a lot of training and teaching of them and then almost acting more like an advisor and they were the ones that were doing the teaching and preaching when you guys would go to these new villages? Do you see my difference in were, yeah. were you kind of the main speaker or were, were they, and, or did you transition from you started out main speaker and then would have them take over? how did that look? Yeah. Most of the time I was working with leaders uh, and 
my teaching times were almost exclusively with leaders. When we were in a large group setting, especially in a new village, um, I might say a few words uh, or do some things, uh, some introductory remarks, but the the local Christians, the local church leaders were the ones that were doing most of the teaching in those settings. Right. Um, and in, even in church services in our village, you know, occasionally they would ask me to speak, but uh, I really wanted my role to be in teaching and relationship with the church leaders. Mm-hmm. I wanted the church leaders to have the role of leading the church starting new churches and doing the evangelistic teaching. Yeah. yeah. So it wasn't that you stunk at Turkana. It was actually, strate- <laughs> it was strategic, right? Right. It was strategic. Yeah, it was, it was strategic. Yeah. Uh, right. Which and, was, I, and, I, and I didn't want to baptize people either. Like that was something occasionally I would end up baptizing some people. Uh, but I had this real strong desire. Uh, you know, some of the arguments that Paul made and in, in scripture and, you know, that I didn't want people to think, well, I was baptized by the missionary. You know, I wanted I wanted these churches to be Turkana churches, not an American church or an American started this church kind right. of thing. Yeah, no, I love that. Well, my second question from earlier was, as you started compiling all of these lessons and materials from different missionaries across the board, is that where the genesis of the Turkana Bible Training Institute came from? Like, think looking yeah. ahead. And so I'm I have the benefit of knowing you for close to 20, <laughs> 20 years now. So I'm kind of familiar of that with that. But was that what, would that be like a transition point for you? Even looking ahead to your second term is like, okay, something's going on here with this stuff that I'm collecting and this is what I want to focus on. How'd that yeah, work? there were a number of things that were happening at the same time. So uh, I was really spending a lot of time looking at the type of training that we were doing and gathering all the materials uh, as a team we were looking really closely at how do we evaluate how well we've been doing at, at raising up leaders and also trying to think Turkana wide in the area where we were ministering instead of just village by village. What was the next level of training that was needed for church leaders? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, by the end of that first term, we had dreamed up this idea that we would have our own uh, Bible training Institute mm. uh, that church leaders uh, would come to for training, not leave their churches. So, you know, for higher training or theological education, usually someone would have to have a, have a high school degree mm-hmm. uh, and they'd probably go to Eldoret or Nairobi, some bigger cities in Kenya. Which are, which are like how many hours away from where? Well, the uh, Eldoret's a day away and Nairobi's two days away. And, yeah, it's crazy. And, and they wouldn't be engaged in ministry while yeah. they were in training. And so what we wanted to do was dream up a way that church leaders could get more training, that they could be also the churches in Kenya were becoming more organized. They were becoming their own official denomination uh, within Kenya. And so they started to have national requirements for being ordained as a pastor. So oh, okay. how do we provide training to a, a local church leader who uh, only speaks Turkana, has not finished high school, so that they have enough training to to be ordained in the church officially as a pastor and also not require them to leave their ministry setting mm-hmm. for that training. So that was kind of, and All, then we had, we had a number of yeah. missionaries that were leaving toward mm-hmm. the end of my first term uh, and we had a much smaller team. So we had to think, 
not just about the village area that we lived in, but the whole area and how we were going to bring some of that stuff together. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, it was kind happened. of a, a perfect storm of things coming together uh, yeah. and seeing trends within the church needs within the church trends within the culture, like, or from the, even the government that they're pushing things like yep. ordination and things like that. Uh, uh, yeah. to, that led that really led into your second term then and and your focus yeah. became building up the Chicana Bible Training Institute. Yeah, absolutely. So we got back for our second term. Um, uh, a couple things happened. Uh, I became the official team leader before at the end of my first term. Mm. By the end of my first term, I was the kind of like the administrative chairperson for our team. We never had a team leader up to that okay. point. Uh, and then that was when CMF made the switch to you need to have a team leader. And it's it's really uh, uh, the strategy area director that's making that decision about who the team leader is. So I came back as the team leader. I also came back with a very clear vision for starting a Bible training institute where that kind of training could happen oh. at a higher mm -hmm. level. Um, and so we started out in a new village. We moved to a new village in our second term uh, to work with some new churches uh, in that area, S tried to have the Bible training Institute there in that village. I just, we just built a little shed out behind our house, <laughs> uh, and, and try to get guys to come in from different villages for mm -hmm. some, a few days of training a month. And then what we found was that everybody was like, well, if we have to travel away from home anyway, we'd really like to go to town so uh -huh. we can go to town and do training. And then we also can buy stuff and take it back home. Not to some, some rando shack in the <laughs> back of your house. <laughs> yeah. They weren't real thrilled with that. Okay. So <laughs> um, then you transitioned to Lodwar, the main. Yeah. To the main town. Main yeah. Town. In Turkana. Okay. So it was, and it became like multi-purpose trip for them. They could buy, sell stuff for their families and then yeah. also come and get equipped for their ministries. Man, that's awesome. And that was really hard. We, as a family, we never wanted to live in Lodwar. Lodwar was like mm -hmm. the worst place we could imagine living. Living out in the village was great. Like, yeah. you know, it, the village was an ideal situation in many ways. We spent a lot of time together as a family. We knew all of our neighbors, everybody knew mm -hmm. us. And we felt very safe mm -hmm. uh, in the, in Lodwar in town, you know, you're living behind a fence and locked gates and you don't yeah. know who the people are. And, you know, people are staring at you cause you're the oddity and yeah. Uh, in a village people get over that, but not in town. Right. Yeah. It takes, cause you have an influx of new people every day coming in from other far reaching areas and everything yeah. else. But so it was how, the best place for the training. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you guys made the choice. It wasn't based off of the comfort for your family. It was based really off of the need that the church had uh, for the yeah. training that you made that move. So how many years? Yeah, initially, initially we thought we would, our family would keep living out in the village and I just drive to town like and be in town one week every month for the training. And then yeah. we were like, uh, it's better for our family to actually be together all the time. <laughs> yeah. Instead of you always on the road and Katie yeah. with the two boys out in the desert. Yeah, yeah. Abandoned by me. Yes. Abandoned <laughs> by you. So then how many years did you end up spending in Lodwar by that by the point that you guys um, as, as a church and with in partnership with the church realize okay, it needs to be the TBTI needs to be based in Lodwar? Yeah, I think it was like I think it was the last two and a half years of our second term. We were we were in Lodwar. Um 
after yeah after we had the church purchase a plot of land um and it was the middle of nowhere on the outskirts of Lodwar. And you go there now and it's like Lodwar extends well beyond it at this wow. point. Uh, and we wouldn't be able to afford the land at this point either. Isn't uh, that crazy? Wow. Yeah, it is crazy. Uh, yeah. So, so uh, it, uh, wait, what did you ask me? <laughs> oh, just, just how, how long were you there for? Oh yeah. Just two and a half years, two and a half years, yeah, two and a half years to, to finish up that term. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. To finish up that term. Well, I want to hear more about your transition back to the United States, what that looked like for you guys as a family it for you personally, as you wrestled with ministry or what to do coming back to the United States. And eventually this big move of your family to Indianapolis and you taking on the role as the executive director. We haven't had the opportunity to delve into that part of your story yet. So sure. I'd like to revisit that uh, on another episode. But as we wrap up this episode, just want to ask you a couple of questions. Mm -hmm. What like words of advice would you give to yourself as Kip Lyons in your first term of ministry, whether that was in the throes of language learning or just getting used to doing ministry uh, with these people, trying to figure out how to feel welcomed by them. Is, do you have any words of advice that you would have given to yourself? Yeah, um, I think, you know, looking back uh, on a time like that, um, sometimes you recognize uh, the, the things that you missed out on and the regrets that you have because mm -hmm. you, you, you didn't do certain things. And so as I look back on that time period, one of the things I really wish uh, I had done, well, uh, one of the things I really wish I had done was spent more time journaling. Mm -hmm. uh, and even if I just had a daily diary where I just wrote down a few mm -hmm. things that happened each yeah. day, I know some people would have done that. I'm kind of jealous of that at this point. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I wish I could look back and see more clearly what I was doing uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm -hmm. Um I, th I think that's really valuable in helping to process things. Um, I wish I had found um, better ways to invite uh, Turkana people into our family life. That was mm, that was a big that was a big challenge. Uh, yeah. We were so different. Mm -hmm. We were so different than the culture around us living there, uh, and and we had inherited. Um, missionary practices that came before us that were intended to help keep us safe, intended to help keep right. us healthy, that kind of yeah. stuff. Uh, and so we got quickly early on in our ministry, we were in a pattern of uh, kind of having our own private space that we mm -hmm. would protect. Uh, and I think that that was misunderstood, especially in our home. Yeah. And I wish uh, I would tell myself new, if I was new working in Turkana in ministry, mm -hmm. uh, find ways to invite people more into your home and into your family's regular routines instead of building a separate routine that's kind of a separate American culture from the, from the Turkana culture. But that's really difficult yeah. uh, for an American family, you know? Yeah, because... The concept of boundaries and when to say yes, yeah. when to say no, it does get muddled when you're on the field, um, right. and trying to figure out how do I fit into this culture? How do I fit this culture also into my family culture? Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I think we all make mistakes uh, in our first term 
<laughs> when it comes to figuring out yeah. when to say yes and when to say no and what those boundaries yeah. should look like. That's really interesting. Well, did to, I tell you about the camel that I ended up no, buying? No, I need to know about the camel that you bought. <laughs> this was yeah, I mean, this would be a great end to this one, but uh, <laughs> so that was that was during my language learning year. I totally got talked into buying a camel. Of course, and you I didn't did. <laughs> didn't realize I was getting talked into buying a camel. Uh, and, and not just any camel, like I was talked into overpaying for a camel that somebody has been trying to sell so that the entire village could have like a giant camel feast and eat this camel the <laughs> so day that I purchased it. It wasn't a pet. It wasn't a pet. It wasn't. No, 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 no. It People was wanted to have like a big meal celebration feast thing. And how I knew that I had been, that I had been fooled into doing this and it wasn't about me at all, was mm -hmm. on the day that I purchased this camel, like I barely saw the camel before it was killed and slaughtered. And they started eating it before I even got to the river <laughs> to join in the, the festival so or whatever. When, so when you bought the camel, did the guy like have a big knife in his hand when he took the money from you or anything like that? <laughs> <laughs> like he's not, like, you, did, you had a clue, right? Oh, no, no, no. This you was like, a, I wasn't even involved in the actual transaction. You know, uh -huh, I, was, yeah, I was just providing the funds. Mm -hmm. so this camel could be purchased. And yeah, that was one of the one of the reasons that you have to leave that village that you do that you learn language in is you make mm -hmm. a lot of strange mistakes. Yeah, really bad mistakes that could compound <laughs> over time and and just keep happening to you. But you the nice thing is at the end of the the camel roast uh they ended up giving me like a whole wheelbarrow full of uh camel meat. There's a lot yeah. of meat on a camel. Yeah, oh, yeah. I'm yeah. I'm sure I mean they're massive <laughs> animals so I'm sure there is now what in the world did you guys do with a wheelbarrow full of camel meat? Like, did you eat well, it all or did you just start handing it out to other people? We, we cooked a little bit of it and realized it's really super tough. We had to use our <laughs> pressure cooker to cook it uh -huh. and it still was pretty tough. So we ended up handing a lot of it out. Yeah. To our friends uh, oh, that lived right by us. So yeah. Funny. Yeah. 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 We uh, definitely can't top that story or even, I guess the advice don't buy a camel. Yeah, yeah. Don't so, don't buy any no big purchases in your first year. No big purchases, <laughs> including camels. Yeah, definitely <laughs> camels that are going to be eaten. All right, Kip, thanks so much for uh, being on the Fellowship Podcast today, and uh, for this episode, we're really grateful for you in this time. We'll talk to you again soon. We're I definitely going to have you on again. Thanks, man. We'd also like to thank you, the listener, for being a part of the Fellowship Podcast. We look forward to many more stories and interviews to come. And we hope that stories like Kip's uh, will continue to serve as a challenge and an encouragement for you to get out there and connect with what God is doing in the world around you.